Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jeremy Suri. I'm a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. And this is the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Please listen carefully. Hey, hey, everyone, welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. Before we launch into today's program, if you haven't subscribed to our free email newsletter yet, we sure hope you will. If you go to connorsforum.org, you can subscribe in just one click. It's so easy, and our newsletter is an outstanding source of nonpartisan information. All right, well, on today's program, our guest is Jeremy Surrey. He's a historian at the University of Texas who has a new book out right now titled Civil War by Other Means. America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. It focuses specifically on the failures of Reconstruction in the aftermath of the Civil War. But if you read this book, I actually think you get a lot of insight into the struggles that our democracy is currently facing. Now, I say that because I believe there is overwhelming evidence that American democracy is currently failing. Now, That's a hard thing to say. That's a hard thing to come to grips with. Um, And when I say that, I don't actually mean that American democracy is going to fail. So if we think of like a car, for instance, that's veering off the road, that car can be brought back under control or it can continue off the road. There are a variety of outcomes that are possible, but each outcome is dependent upon something happening or not happening. So somebody has to act to bring the car back under control or else it continues off the road. Our democracy, I believe, is failing and it's being actively undermined by bad faith actors at various levels. So will we bring it back under control? It's not going to happen by itself. It's only going to happen if the weaknesses that those bad faith actors have exploited are fixed and time is running out to do that. And I think it's important that we all keep this front of mind. Um, I'm going to kind of put a pin in this conversation for now. We'll have much more to say about this on future episodes. But, um, you know, I just wanted to keep this front of mind, keep this salient, something that we're all thinking about, um, you know, consistently with the midterms coming up and, and, uh, you know, these really important decisions facing our country. But for now... Let's go ahead and shift gears and get back to the topic for today, Jeremy Surrey's new book. So let's bring in our guest, historian Jeremy Surrey, to talk about Civil War by Other Means.
Suri. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. All right. So we want to talk about your newest book. We want to talk about some of your other books. But before we get there, tell us a little bit about your background, about your academic training. So I'm trained as a historian. Uh, I'm the child of immigrants to the United States. I grew up in New York City. And I think my whole life, Lawrence, has been an effort to understand how history made my world possible and how my world just seems to change around me all the time. I'm a scholar of politics and how politics influence our lives. So you're a child of immigrants. Uh, How does it feel in this particular moment where um, the debate about immigration is particularly heated. And uh, how, how do you feel about it? How does your family feel about it? So um, it feels like the past and the present have come together. As a historian, I know that uh, we've always been a country of immigrants and we've always been a country that has hated immigrants at the same time that we embrace them. We've gone through many waves, as, as I'm sure your listeners know, of anti-immigrant extremism. Uh, and we had a, a series of laws in the early 20th century, the Johnson-Reed Act, most uh, notoriously from 1924, that actually limited immigration from certain countries based on the race of the individual or the religion of the individual. Um, and so what we're seeing today is not new in any sense at all. Uh, and that's, first of all, what I find a little comforting that we've made our way through these kinds of moments. But it's also very depressing that we haven't seemed to learn very much either. Yeah. And so for my family, one of the things we often discuss is precisely this. How is it and why is it that we seem like hamsters on a wheel constantly replaying the flaws of our past? So I do want to get to your book, and I know that your publicist somewhere is listening and saying, "Okay, let's go. We're trying to ship some copies here." But <laughs> I, I got to ask you a few more uh, sort of sensitizing questions. Yeah. So uh, it, you piqued my interest about history, right? So not only is this a time that's very fraught in terms of the immigration discourse, but also teaching about and researching history is particularly fraught at the moment. So could you talk about what it's like doing history at a time where People look at you and say, ah, what's your agenda? Right? Yeah. Like, what are you trying yeah. to get at here? Yeah. So we live in a moment, there's no doubt, where everyone is suspicious of where you're coming from. And they think that any facts you share with them uh, have some sort of political agenda uh, attached to them. For me, I, I find that actually stimulating and an opening because uh, what I want to do is not deflate people's myths. I want to get people to think. So when I'm in the classroom... Or when I'm speaking to an audience uh, outside the classroom that I often will speak to of different kinds, um, I will try to get a sense of where they're coming from. And instead of trying to knock down their often non-factual presumptions, I try to figure out a way in which I can raise issues that will seem palatable to the world they're coming from, but also challenge them at the same time. And and so the the point there is to stimulate them and to get them to react. That's challenging their presumptions, but I'm not telling them that they're stupid and trying to undermine their understanding of science. I'm trying to show them something different that they can't fully deny and force them to react and think about that. One advantage we have as historians is we know a lot of stuff and we can present people with uh, evidence from another time that can at least shake up their presumptions of the present. And I find that stimulating. It's not always received well. But it's our job. Yeah, you know, when I when I talk to people about the work that I do as a social scientist, which I'm sure a lot of what we do is very similar, obviously, it's very different, but uh, there's some similarities in terms of the research process. But I think there's sometimes some projection, right? Like if, if I don't do this one thing, 
then I don't think you're doing this one thing either. And so it's like, well, I see the world from my perspective. I, I try to look for things that confirm my beliefs. And so you must be doing the same thing. And of course I do as a human being, right? But as a researcher, uh, it is part of the the guardrails of our research that you must look for all of these different avenues and, and possible alternative hypotheses because even if you didn't do that because you were a good researcher, which is what I do, I explore even the most ridiculous alternative hypotheses, but you do it because if if you don't, the journal is going to reject it, right? Because right? <laughs> right. right. they're going to ask you, why didn't you consider this? Right? Totally, totally. And and I think in our case, as, as historical social scientists, and I'm sure this bleeds into your work too, uh, we have to show our work. We have to show right. how we know what we know. And I think one of the challenges people on the right, but also on the left have, is they think they know things that they don't have evidence for. And, and so, to me, that's an important discussion. This is what I'm teaching in the classroom. I'm not teaching my students to remember everything I tell them in the history classroom, but I'm telling, teaching them how to identify good historical scholarship, good historical arguments, and bad ones, just as you're teaching them to address good social science arguments and bad ones. All right. You got this great new book. It's out October 18th from Public Affairs Books called Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. So, what prompted you to write this book before we talk about uh, all the little nitty gritty details? Well, I'm a historian who's written a lot about uh, democracy and policymaking, particularly foreign policymaking. And yet, uh, as much as I have embedded myself in this uh, historical scholarship, I've been stunned the last six to seven years by how precarious, fragile, and uncertain our democracy is. And so, this book was my trying to educate myself about that. Why and where does that come from? Why, why is our democracy less secure than I had assumed for so long, even as a professional historian who should know better? Does it give you some kind of optimism that our democracy has been strained to the breaking point before we made it through? Or um, are you pessimistic like me? I'm an optimist by nature, I have to admit. And um, I think when you're a historian, you see reasons for pos positive thinking and negative thinking. Uh, I am, though, optimistic because I do think there's an ability for us to learn. And I think the other moments when we've been strained uh, are moments we can learn from. And that's precisely why I wrote this book, not because it has any silver bullet solution, but I think looking at the two decades after the Civil War, which this book focuses on in particular, as well as January 6th, but looking at those two decades, one learns important lessons that can help us think through the challenges we have today. All right. So, let's talk about it. So, uh, what was Lincoln's vision? Now, obviously, things turned out very differently, right? But uh, what was Lincoln's vision for bringing the country back together, reconstructing it, and um, and pulling ourselves out of the Civil War? So, Lincoln was a believer in uh, free labor, free soil, free men, that uh, everyone should be able to work freely where they wish, and that everyone should be paid for their work. And in being paid for their work, they should therefore have the right to use their pay to buy property and to live as they wish. Um, so he was not someone who focused on race and the way we think about race today. Slavery was a horror for Abraham Lincoln because he was born a poor white man in Kentucky, which was a state filled with large landowners and slave owners, and he was neither. And so he had no opportunity 
And he wanted to create opportunity for poor white men as well as poor black men and, and others. And so his vision of bringing the country together was actually what we would today call democratic capitalism. That's what the Republican Party, and he's the first Republican president, that's what it was about, giving everyone the opportunity to work, get paid fairly, and buy land and live as they wish. Uh, that was what would bring the country together. He believed that was the Republican vision from Lincoln, actually through Theodore Roosevelt. Now, and you say for at least a few months after the Civil War ends, things are going reasonably well. Tell us about the few months after the war ends. Well, it's extraordinary what the Civil War did uh, for the nature, not just of warfare, but of American democracy and American economy. Um, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, former slaves not only left their plantations, uh, they became involved in the Union War effort. They were educated, taught to read. Uh, they became, uh, in some ways, respected figures, even respected among non-African American communities. And after the war, they were able to leverage their military service, as I talk about in the book, into becoming local business owners, uh, into becoming landowners in some cases, and most importantly, into political participation. They voted when they could. They ran for office. Um, and in some parts of the United States, especially in the South, you had more African-Americans elected to office in the months and years after the Civil War than you would again for another century. So before we talk about how things changed and took a dark turn, let's do a counterfactual for a moment, right? So had things continued on that path, obviously things would have been wildly different, right? But um, how might the country look different today? How might a whole variety of issues that are clearly related that we all are, are very salient for us and maybe not related have been different in modern American democracy? I think one of the biggest things that would have been different uh, is that in many parts of the United States, you would have had more African-American wealth created and more African-American political representation built into our system, which would have meant in the 1880s and 90s, you would not have had this backtracking uh, with lynching and Jim Crow. And, and honestly, I think we would have been an even wealthier country. And we would have been a country that still had race issues. Racism would not have gone away. Uh, but we would have had more socioeconomic integration and equality than we did have. Yeah, as a social scientist, uh, we talk a lot about how uh, when you have a heterogeneous society paired with inequalities, material inequalities, that feeds prejudice, right? And so if you hadn't had, you know, another century of Jim Crow, right, and then resulting discrimination after that, um, the assumption is, like you said, race differences wouldn't go away, prejudice wouldn't go away, but um, there wouldn't be that inequality to feed the the false justifications, right? Right. I mean, I think we would have seen a pattern perhaps similar to what we've seen with uh, American Jews after World War II. And I say this as an American Jew myself, right, where World War II does open up spaces for integration of Jews in American life, particularly at universities that didn't exist before. And it's not that anti-Semitism has gone away. It, it's alive and well in the United States, but we don't have many of the same socioeconomic tensions between Jews and non-Jews that we had before that. And I think we could have perhaps imagined that trajectory for African-Americans in American society if things had continued on the pattern they were in in the days and months after the Civil War. Yeah, I'm disappointed in myself for not being able to remember the name of this person, particularly because they were an African-American scholar. Um, but there's this great film from California newsreel called uh, race, the power of an illusion. 
And he said something to the effect of, you know, if the Civil War had ended and, and those who waged it just said, we enslaved people because we could. That could have led to a, like counterfactually, could have led to a very different uh, future than saying we did it because they were inferior, right? right? Like right. if you just said if it was brute power, right, then you could have really undermined a lot of those cultural justifications. What Lincoln wanted, and this is what makes his second inaugural so beautiful, stunning, and enduring, was for us to acknowledge it as original sin. That's exactly how he talks about slavery and say the war was penance to get that sin. Or the way I describe it to students, that slavery was a cancer and the war was the violent surgery to get the cancer out of the body. Yeah, it's funny you say, not funny, none of this is funny, but uh, it's interesting you say cancer. Uh, one of the things I, and this is not, this is only kind of tangentially related, but uh, when I talk to my students about racism, I say, uh, you know, oftentimes I hear people say, if you just, it's you, it's you leftists, like, because I'm a university professor, I must be leftist. Uh, if you, you're just talking about race so much, if you would just stop talking about it, it would go away. And I say to them, I, I use the metaphor of cancer. I say, if you had cancer and you went to the hospital and your doctor walked in and said, I don't know what you have. I don't care. We're just going to ignore it. Let's just stop talking yep, about yep, it and it'll go yep. away. You'd say, check, please. I'm going to a different yep. hospital. Right? <laughs> precisely. Precisely. That's really, I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that from you. That's good. Ah, no, no problem. Just, yeah, you know, attribute it to the big bald guy. All right. <laughs> So, uh, so things go okay or better than they uh, end up going for a few months after the war. But as your title suggests, the Civil War continues by other means. So, uh, things break down rather quickly. Take us through that uh, that that historical moment. Sure. So, I think uh, almost immediately, uh, for reasons that are actually understandable, uh, many groups uh, in the South, but also in the North and in the West, uh, feel very uncomfortable with these changes. I, I try to remind people how disorienting it must have been, even if you weren't a slaveholder. Uh, to to grow up seeing slaves, African-Americans in that role, and then all of a sudden the next day they're carrying guns. And in, in Washington, D.C., for example, African-American soldiers are guarding <laughs> white prisoners. And, and so um, that really contributes to efforts by various different groups to hold on to power, to hold on to uh, control over land and resources, and to keep African-Americans and their supporters out of those areas. There are some extreme versions of this, which I talk about in the book, uh, former Confederate generals who actually go to Mexico and try to launch uh, a war from Mexico, working with a foreign leader, Maximilian, who was Louis Napoleon's stooge in Mexico to try to come back and continue the war. But the vast majority uh, of Confederates and their sympathizers uh, basically continue to resist in one form or another. They resist by denying land ownership. They resist by forming their own militias. Um, and they resist primarily by finding every legal mechanism they can at the local level to contradict the federal pressures. And they idealize uh, heroic figures like John Wilkes Booth, who they see as martyrs for the cause. So you argue that uh, so these old uh, white supremacist habits return. But after the war, you say it gets more ferocious than before. So tell us why you'd say that. 
I think it definitely gets more ferocious because um, it's more necessary to take things into your own hands. In a world of slavery, things are pretty much organized for you. You you can actually keep the violence at a distance if, unless you're one of the slave catchers or uh, militia people. But you can actually live in a way and convince yourself that, and, and this is the stereotype that remained in American TV until the 50s and 60s, oh, these African-American people on the plantation, they were treated reasonably well and they were happy to be there. And this is nonviolent. I mean, this this has gone with the wind, right? It's just, we, we just want our safe society here. Um, now you have to fight for it. Now more is at stake. Now it's more precarious. And this is not unique to that moment after the Civil War when those with power feel most threatened. That's often when they react most violently and most in a most extreme way. So tell us about some, before we get to um, Andrew Johnson, the election of 1876, tell us about some of these sort of, um, you know, big events in the book that you talk about. You talk about some post-war rioting, you talk about the return of Confederate exiles. So, so tell us about some of these um, big watershed moments for this failure of Reconstruction. So, so one event that I focus on uh, is uh, the rioting in cities like Memphis. Uh, and I don't want to just single out one city. There are, in fact, so many of these. But let's talk about Memphis, for example. Uh, about a year after 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 Appomattox, uh, the African American community in Memphis, um, which is a large community of former slaves, um, they are beginning to establish themselves quite well. They are beginning to have more businesses, more churches, etc. Uh, and um, the local uh, leadership becomes very threatened by this local white leadership. And uh, the sheriff, uh, all kinds of uh, business people, judges and others, they form their own militia and they um, attack the African-American community, killing so many and, and undertaking sexual violence of all different kinds. There is a large Union Army contingent in Memphis, but the uh, head of that, the, the, the general in charge, um, he's concerned about his African-American soldiers getting caught up in this. And so he actually keeps them uh, out of the ride until a couple of days into it. Um, we know all about this because there's a congressional investigation that includes testimony, uh, a hearing, we might say, <laughs> about this. And uh, what we see in Memphis, and again, this is true in many other cities, is that all the local governing white officials are complicit with the violence, encourage the violence, participate in the violence. The Union Army is very slow to respond, uh, and it devastates uh, this African-American community in Memphis. Similar things will happen in Colfax uh, in 1873. They'll happen in various parts of North Carolina and South Carolina and Texas. Um, th these are pogroms. These are organized local riots um, against rising African-American communities, and they're not conducted by crazies. They're conducted by the actual local officials. Uh, and and that, there's a string and a line you can draw from that moment through the use of sheriffs and local officials to kill people like Emmett Till in 1954. This continues in various forms uh, through the next uh, century or so. Uh, there also are figures uh, like um, uh, this uh, gentleman named Terrell from Texas, uh, Maury, uh, Professor Maury from Virginia and others who I talk about in the book, who uh, are Confederate officers who leave the country, they uh, fight for Napoleon's uh, stooge against 
uh, the United States' interest in Mexico. They join a foreign army, which is actually the definition of treason. Uh, when uh, Maximilian uh, loses in Mexico, when he's killed by uh, the uh, democratizing forces, uh, they return to the United States. Uh, they claim they were heroes twice, that they fought for the Confederacy in the United States, and they left the United States and fought for the Confederacy, and they get involved in state politics. And Terrell, for example, um, is responsible for writing uh, election laws in Texas thereafter. So these former Confederates who revolted against the U.S. government, fought for a foreign entity, they established themselves as heroes and become individuals using their influence to continue to undermine democracy at the local level. Uh, in Texas, for example, uh, until uh, the 20th century, until actually World War II, Texas has a primary that does not allow African-Americans to vote in it. So the 15th Amendment said you couldn't, uh, even in a state like Texas, you couldn't say that people can't vote because they're African-American in an election. But Texas claimed, thanks to Terrell and the other exiles, well, a primary is not an election. A primary is actually run by parties, right? The Democrats run a primary, the Republicans. So we will just say black people can't vote in our primary. And so as late as 1938, for example, uh, African-Americans could vote in the November election, but they didn't get to vote for the people who would be on the ballot. So they don't really have a choice, you know, when it comes to that. That is a consequence of those decades after the Civil War, what these figures did as rioters, as exiles, and then how they embedded their ideas in what we call democracy, but wasn't really democracy. So we'll get back to uh, the 19th century in a moment, but you mentioned World War II. And I heard a rumor, I'm not a historian myself, but I've heard a rumor that Hitler and his men actually looked to methods of Jim Crow as at least inspiration, if not a model for some of the things that they did in Nazi Germany. True or false? I'm not, I'm not sure. As a, I'm not a historian. Absolutely true. There's extensive documentation, if any of your listeners are interested. Uh, there's a bookshelf worth of major works written by German and American historians in the last 10 years uh, about this. So you're actually at the cutting edge, Lawrence. It's a really good question, in fact. Uh, here's what we know. Two, two things. Um, that uh, many of the Nazi theorists and other uh, right-wing theorists, uh, Alfred Rosenberg and others, they studied very closely Jim Crow laws, and they studied what I'm talking about also the period after the Civil War, because they saw themselves in their own Civil War, and took inspiration from that. Here's the second thing. They thought many of the things that were done, like the public lynchings, uh, went too far and wouldn't be possible even by Nazis in Germany. So they saw some elements of what I'm talking about as even too extreme for them. Um, and, and as I said, for those who are interested, this is, this is deeply and extensively documented and, and uh, it, it's sobering uh, to see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd seen some um, sort of pop, you know, like history channel stuff on that. And I had shown in my classes and, and kind of making the point you made, it's like, it's a really um, appalling point that like, this was too much for the Nazis. Right. Um, but I'm not a professional historian. And, you know, if you're not in that field, you don't know if things have changed, new documents come out. I didn't want to sort of pass that as fact. So um, that's a, yeah, that's they, a really. They saw, you know, the, the Nazis wanted to create what they call a Reichstadt, a state, a, stat, a state based on law, consistent application of law. They wanted the law to affect different groups in different ways, but they wanted it to be consistent. And they saw, for instance, the paramilitary violence, the public lynchings, the vigilantism. 
which was frequent and common in the United States, they saw that as lawless, even though they agreed with the use of um, violence against certain racial groups. They wanted it to be in a more organized, coherent way. Fascinating. Uh, with, maybe I'll bring you back. We'll do a whole other episode on that. Uh, but let's get back to the 19th century. So um, tell us about some other events. So I want to talk about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson and the election of 1876. But let's start with Johnson and, and what this tells us about this period and about Reconstruction. So uh, Andrew Johnson's presidency is fascinating. And I honestly think we haven't spent enough time as historians as well as citizens grappling with it uh, because he seems so odious and uh, it's just not a pleasant subject. Uh, but this man really became virtual dictator, not president of the United States, and he never should have been. Um, he was put on the ticket in 1864 by Lincoln when he runs for re-election, and initially Lincoln thinks he's going to lose. He puts Johnson on because he was the only Southern Democratic senator not to join the secession. He was a slaveholder, uh, and he was initially pro-slavery, but he was pro-union, sort of like Andrew Jackson <laughs> of a generation earlier. Pro-slavery, but pro-union. So he did not leave the Senate with the other secessionist senators. Lincoln, in 1864, wanted to show after this terrible war, uh, or a wall, as the war is continuing and he hopes finishing, Lincoln wants to show that he's building a national unity ticket. That's what he actually calls the ticket, not the Republican ticket, the national unity. He never expected Andrew Johnson to have any role to play. Um, until this moment, vice presidents had basically done nothing in American history. Let me let me make this clear to your listeners. Uh, from Washington to Lincoln, you can pretty much ignore the vice presidents when they're vice president. <laughs> There's really nothing you learn <laughs> about what happens. Um, and that's kind of the way the founders wanted it to be, right? Your job as vice president was just stay alive. Um, well, um, Johnson takes over. Johnson takes over uh, in, in April of uh, 1865, and um, the real problem here is that um, not only is Lincoln gone, has Lincoln been assassinated, but the problem is um, that Congress is not in session again until December, and we're still technically on a war footing. The war has not ended, just with Appomattox. The military is still mobilized. So the president is acting as military commander in chief, making day-to-day -day decisions about which states are part of the union, about where the military goes, about who gets property and who doesn't, with no congressional oversight until December. So someone who was really not elected to office, never intended. He was infamously drunk at the inauguration in March, uh, and, and yet he's in charge, uh, and there are crucial decisions to be made. The first most important one, what role should the military have in occupation when white groups resist African-Americans moving into certain areas, acquiring property? And Johnson immediately pulls back from any use of military force to follow through on union promises. Um, and so this, this is a real flaw in the American system. Um, and he then remains president, of course, for three years. Um, and, and so this is, a big, this is a big problem at the time. And I think it's something we need to think about. I talk about this at the end of the book. Uh, we don't do succession well in this country. Um, Kennedy to Johnson is actually not, uh, not a good succession. Lincoln to Johnson is not a good succession. We need to think about that uh, and, and other ways to do this. One of the things I suggest is I'm not sure 
that if a vice president has to take over that early in a new president's term that we shouldn't have another election. I think we should have had what a parliamentary system would do is you have the caretaker take over and then you do another election. So you actually have someone elected to office, not someone who's slid into office in that way. Interesting. How much support would that kind of an idea have among your profession? Uh, when I mention it to people and when I've, when people have started to read the book, they, they respond in an intrigued way. People haven't thought about it. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a lacuna. That, yeah. It's a lacuna. Yeah. Right. But, but my proposal is it's one thing if you take over as vice president in the last year of someone's term. Right. But if it's like this, you know, where it's, you know, essentially Lincoln had been president for one month. It's like the whole term. <laughs> yeah. He, he's got the whole, and, and we all know no one really elects. Yes, he was on the ticket, but it wasn't an election for Andrew Johnson. Right. Right. Uh, so, uh, tell us about number one, what the election of 1876 means for your book and the consequences of this, but also, um, you know, listeners who are interested in American democracy right now might be interested to know the connection between some of the stuff that's happening now and, uh, 1876. So go ahead. Well, so first, everything that's happening now is actually about 1876. <laughs> the The Electoral Act of 1887 that Congress is talking about revising is written as a consequence of the 1876 election. Uh, 1876, we don't know who won. We still don't know. We still don't know who won. And that's true for a number of elections after that. In 1876, we have uh, Rutherford B. Hayes running as the legacy of Abraham Lincoln. He's the Republican candidate. He had been a Civil War general, governor of Ohio. Uh, that's the way to get elected president in the late 19th century is to be from Ohio. It's the, it's the, uh, the tipping point state, what Pennsylvania is today, right? Uh, you want to be from Ohio. And... Um, He's running on the Republican side. And then Samuel Tilden, governor of New York, is running on the Democratic side. It's extraordinary. Samuel Tilden is completely forgotten, but he was a major, major figure in the Democratic Party. He was not a Southern Confederate, but he was sympathetic, as many New Yorkers were to Southern Confederates. What was his view? His view that the system of slavery and the system of racial stratification in the South worked reasonably well for New York business interests. And let's not let's not shake things up too much. It's a, it's a, it's a business point of view. It's not actually a fascist point of view, right? It's a business point of view, which is to say, stable markets. Let's keep markets stable. Let's continue uh, in, in this way. He was from upstate New York. It made a lot of sense to think about the world that way. Um, in this election, he wins the popular vote. More people vote for Tilden. But it's unclear in a number of states that matter for the electoral vote. This is one of the reasons our system doesn't work. It's unclear who has won those states, uh, three states in particular. In these three states, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, um, the election is very close and you have different claims as to who has won the election based on how you count the ballots. And there are literally people at the uh, voting locations yelling at each other, <laughs> disputing how these ballots should be counted. Um, some are arguing that um, ballots that... Uh, have come from African-American voters are fraudulent. They use the word fraud. Some are arguing that um, ballots have been thrown away because someone has said they're fraudulent and are not fraudulent. And it, it comes down to this issue of whose votes should count. And each of those three states sends two sets of electors. 
each of them sends two sets uh, of electors. The governors of those three states all happen to be Republicans. So they all certify the electors for Hayes. In certifying all three sets of electors for Hayes, what they have done is given him the electoral majority by one. By one. Tilden only needs one of those states. Uh, but all three have Republicans, which makes it even more complicated in Florida, for example, the Republican governor has just been defeated. So he won't be governor in 1877, but he's still governor after the election. So he can still certify. Pretty consequential um, lame duck session there. Precisely. Precisely. <laughs> so um, there, there, there's, there's, a, there's a dispute now. And unlike 2020, uh, in this case, there really is uncertainty. We know in 2020 that there was one set of legitimate electors from Arizona, and then there were the garbage electors that were fraudulently yeah, being put Tens forward. and tens of thousands of votes difference, right? Here, we really don't know. You count the votes two different ways. Again, it, it's, an, it's close enough. If you count a few votes or don't count a few, it makes, it makes a huge difference. Um, so, there's no agreement here, and there's no way to go forward. There's really no way to go forward. And you do have uh, groups starting to arm and prepare and talk about uh, fighting this out in the streets, really. Uh, and there is some low-level uh, violence. Congress creates a commission. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz referred to this on January 6th, and he referred to it in a really uh, inaccurate way, and he knew he was being inaccurate, by the way. Uh, th this commission was not created to investigate um, who and who had really won and how to figure, figure this out. The commission is put together to actually come up with a method for going forward and finding the fairest way to think about this electoral dispute. So you have uh, on this commission uh, five members of Congress who are Democrats, five who are Republicans, and then five Supreme Court justices, two who are appointed by Democrats, three who are appointed by Republicans. Where do you think this ends up? <laughs> um, the commission comes to the conclusion uh, on a vote of 13 and a vote of uh, eight to seven that um, Hayes is one. Uh, the House still refuses to accept that. The Senate does. House is Democrat. Senate's Republican. And so um, we go into this moment where we still don't have a president. We're getting uh, now into February of 1877. Inauguration is March at that period. So they come to a deal. The deal is actually brokered. I talk about this in detail uh, in the book. The deal is is brokered actually by a number of um, former Whigs um, who are Republicans now, but uh, are not, shall we say, some of the most extreme anti-slavery, anti-Southern members of the Republican Party. And uh, some are from Ohio, in fact. And uh, they come to the agreement that um, the Southerners will accept Hayes as president, but in return, some of the things they most feared he would do, he won't do. And one of them is enforce federal law in the South. Uh, Hayes pledges to pull what's left of Union forces, what's left of the U.S. Army out of the South to defang the newly created Justice Department. The Justice Department was created by Ulysses Grant to pull them back and to give more money to various interests in the South that serve white planters, that serve white, white farmers. And uh, Hayes really doesn't have a choice if he wants to be president. And so he makes this deal. It's very explicit. And uh, that really limits any future federal enforcement of civil rights in the South. 
Okay, so you say uh, this should have been a moment for national renewal, but it was ultimately squandered with reverberations still felt today. That's pretty clear in reading your book that it didn't have to be this way. This was the result of many choices by many important actors, and it went a different way. So um, sort of pulling back uh, to the, the sort of bird's eye view here, when somebody reads the entirety of this work, what's the big implications, one, two, five implications that you would like for them to really carry with them? Not not a, sim- a single year, not a single data point, but like what are the big take-home messages you'd like to really be ingrained in the reader? So I have um, three messages among others that I think are, are really important uh, and what I learned myself uh, doing this research. Uh, first of all, I think it's quite clear that uh, the work of changing a society of adjusting to the changing world in our democracy doesn't happen naturally. We, we, we tell people often, even in social science classes where we should know better, that there's this is invisible hand and markets will do these things. Markets are incredibly powerful. I, I believe in markets, by the way, right? I, I hope my book sells well on the book market, right? I believe in this stuff, <laughs> but it doesn't naturally change the world, especially when you have entrenched interests of various kinds. It doesn't have to be just race we're talking about. And there there's a lot of hard work that has to go into thinking about how do we adjust a society where people naturally with power want to hold on to things and maintain the status quo to adjust to a changing world of immigration, of technology, of uh, economic flows and patterns of things of that kind. So that's one thing, right? This is not naturally going to happen. We have to think this through. That's what leadership is about. Second, um, our democratic institutions are not only brittle, they're made and remade by every generation. That's actually the genius of our system. One of the things I talk about in the book that we didn't have time to talk about here in depth are the ways in which the Supreme Court has changed during this period. Uh, we have this view of the Supreme Court as always, it should always be the same. And maybe we can't agree on what it should be. Uh, but actually, a dynamic system means the court should be changing to the world that it's in. Uh, during the period covered in the book, the court goes from eight to 10, back to eight with different jurisdiction, completely makeup, different makeup in the way the court operates. Uh, and that's a strength of this moment. Same thing with Congress, by the way. Not only did members of the South leave, of the Democratic Party leave Congress for a time, when they came back, it was a different Congress. The number of Congress representatives changed over time. We increased the size of the House with almost every generation until 1911 to have more representation, not less. Uh, Again, why are we static? So the second point is not only that should we not rely on markets, we have to recognize our institutions have to actively be changing. In a democratic society, it's not the parchment that makes the institutions, it's how we adjust the institutions. We did that really well after World War II, by the way, creating a national security establishment we didn't have before for a Cold War. We need a kind of remake of our government institutions for the different society we have inside. And then third, and, and, and per- perhaps most important, and I think most relevant for where we are today, uh, we have to recognize that there are lines of influence from what we've been talking about, Lawrence, to some of the extremism today. And we have to see that as a real issue. It's not just some crazy people saying things on the internet. And that makes it almost more threatening. But that also means that there are ways to think about longer-term cures. Why are people drawn to this kind of behavior? What is it that incentivizes 
violence, that incentivizes extremism, that incentivizes attacks on democracy, whether you're in exile uh, of the 1860s or whether you're a proud boy today or a Ku Klux Klan member of one of these. And, and what can we do not only as a policing entity to stop that from happening, but also to disincentivize um, that, that kind of behavior. I think there are many things we can do, and it can start with, with education. Um, back to your question about being a historian, um, it is important that we teach people about this so that they are warned about it in their own lives. So they are warned that this is not just the past, it's also the present. Yeah, your point about institutions not just functioning on their own uh I, a number of people have made this point on this show. In fact, Noam Chomsky made this point on the left. And then we had Jonathan Last and Tom Nichols on the right making this point, which is uh, it's amazing how much of our system operates on the honor code. Yes. Um, that the law doesn't spell out exactly how a democracy should work from the beginning of the day to the end, that a lot of its interpretation, you have to rely on honorable people in good faith, carrying it out in the spirit of democracy. And many aspects of our system work like that, right? That's exactly right. That's that's exactly right. There, there's a presumption that people will at least try to follow the law and try to do the right thing. And, and I've come to the conclusion that uh, we've been fortunate that most of our presidents have tried to do that. Andrew Johnson did not, by the way. Uh, he's in that small category. Trump's not alone. <laughs> and, and, and But that's also the warning. Then, then even if we get rid of Trump, and this is another message, I guess the fourth message of the book, even if we get rid of Trump uh, and a few other bad apples, we still have w an institutional set of problems here. We have a structural set of problems here, and it is open for another Trump or another Andrew Johnson to cause problems, maybe even worse. So we need to fix this. You know, when my uh, I have a toddler, uh, when he comes into a room, uh, you know, I just he always goes for the most dangerous thing, right? And then I go fix that, right? Like yep, he goes yep. to the outlet and make sure it's covered up. Uh, you're absolutely right. If we have to depend upon always having honorable people, not testing the weaknesses of our system, it's going to fail, right? So, yep. I think the most, the easiest thing to do is just look at the things that they attacked and fix those things, much like the Electoral Count Act, which you referenced. Uh, so, before you go, I got to ask you just a few more questions. That please, okay? please, of course. So, I'm enjoying uh, this. I'm enjoying this a oh, lot. So, please. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, people like myself write books that, you know, aren't all that interesting to an audience because they don't really tap into something that they're, they're uh, grappling with right now. But many people have argued that we're in kind of a third reconstruction right now. So, as somebody, you know, with a racial reckoning that's going on right now, as somebody who's written about reconstruction, somebody who I'm sure has at least thought about, uh, you know, uh, the civil rights era in the 1960s, you know, what did you make of um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd murder? Um, I mean, you say in the book that, hey, this is an urgent history that we can't forget because it's it's having impacts today. What did you make of all that during that moment that really flared up in 2020 has continued to now? I think we are in a third reconstruction, but I think we have to understand what that means. A third reconstruction does not mean that we're going to have another uh, Martin Luther King, uh, I have a dream moment, and all of a sudden things are going to open up. Uh, they didn't then either. That's a misreading of the civil rights movement. But we're in a third reconstruction because we're exactly back in the place that I'm talking about in the book, which is, of course, this reconstruction after the Civil War, which is where we have the country changing, becoming more diverse 
And we have new groups of empowered, not just African-Americans, immigrants and others who we've talked about, those who were not empowered before gaining access to power, access to agency, access to influence. And we have very strong resistance to that. And here's the key point. Um, it's really important that government resources are used to not only help one side, whatever you think is the good side, but to actually build consensus and to build stable but still real change going forward. Uh, some of that, as I said, starts to happen after the Civil War, and then it stops and it goes in the other direction. That's what we have to think about today. We are a different country after George Floyd. It's changed everything in our society, but it's also tightened and strengthened the resistance. We need creative government leadership to address these changes in our society and to bring other people along uh, with us. What does that mean? It means to, it means coming back to some core issues, it, it seems to me, that are there in the 1870s too, providing people with more access to a livelihood where they can feel that they're more connected to others. Equality and opportunity matter enormously. Educational access, healthcare access, a clean environment. You know, these are 21st century issues that are also 1860s and 1870s issues. And that's, that, that's, I, I, that's where the attention really has to be. And those questions are the, the, the reconstruction questions. The, the echoes of your book to the present are amazing. All right, can you do four lightning round? Uh, sure. Short questions, short sure. answers. You ready? Yep. Favorite historical movie? Uh, favorite historical movie? I, I actually love Casablanca, even though it gets a lot of the history wrong. <laughs> favorite history book? Civil War by Other Means. No. Civil War by Other Means. <laughs> no, no. Uh, no. I, as you know, as an author, uh, one is always self-critical, right? It's that you owe every time you read your own prose. How did I say? Why didn't I say that better, right? Uh, so, no. Uh, I think actually my, my favorite um, historical book is Edmund Morgan's American Slavery, American Freedom. It's a book that shows how American freedom and American slavery were interdependent, not contradictions, but one and the same. Favorite thing about being a historian? Every day I learn something new, uh, often from my students, uh, sometimes from my research, often from the process of thinking, and you do your best thinking when you're writing. So every day I learn something new and it keeps me interested. All right. And lastly, uh, if you could give us a one sentence summary of this. Uh, I read about this great book on Amazon, not just your book, Civil War by Other Means, but this other great book. The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. What was the big message of that book? I think it was, oh, it was by Jeremy Surrey. So, uh, <laughs> what's the big message of that book? So, The Impossible Presidency was a book I wrote to explain why so many presidents fail, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And I show, I think, by going into the evidence that they fail because most of their time is spent doing the things that are not important. Uh, and it's like all of our lives. It's an exaggerated version of where the urgent crowds out the important. The president is the most powerful person in the world. But that means that every crisis becomes his crisis, which means he never gets to focus on the positive things he could really do with that power. Jeremy Surrey, the book is called Civil War by Other Means. It is out uh, anywhere you can buy books. October 18th, go to Amazon, uh, go to Public Affairs website, anywhere you can buy books, Barnes and Noble. Uh, but it's a great book. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thank you for having me on, Lawrence. I've enjoyed the conversation. 
Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Till we meet again. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.